0: Today in the Garage, we have Megan Savard and Andrew Fergielli. Megan is a partner at Savard Foy LLP. She practices criminal, constitutional, and regulatory law, with a particular focus on sexual offenses, privacy law, and complex constitutional litigation. Megan is an experienced trial and appellate advocate, appearing regularly at all levels of court, including the Supreme Court of Canada. She has been counsel in some of Canada's highest profile cases. Megan acts as duty counsel for the Ontario Court of Appeals Inmate Appeal Duty Counsel Program. She teaches trial advocacy at the University of Toronto's Faculty of Law, and she is a director of the Criminal Lawyers Association, where she co-chairs its litigation committee. Megan is recognized by Best Lawyers in Canada in Appellate Advocacy and Criminal Defence. Andrew Frigiole is a partner at Doucette Frigiole Ruffo, where he practices in criminal trials and appeals. He has appeared at all levels of court, including the Supreme Court of Canada. Andrew is an adjunct professor at the University of Toronto's Faculty of Law, where he teaches criminal procedure and has been a guest editor of the reputable Criminal Lawyers Association publication for the defense. Andrew was among the founding members of the Criminal Lawyers Association recent call committee, a group dedicated in helping new lawyers sharpen their skills. Andrew was the recipient of the Alan Mewitt Award in criminal law. In today's garage, Megan and Andrew tell us about their early experiences at the bar, their motivations as lawyers, and the methods they use to cope with the tough losses. Whether you're driving your Volvo XC90, riffing your Gibsons, or crafting a cross-examination, step into the garage, listen to the experts, and get a tune-up. Andrew and Megan, I would like to thank you both for joining me in the garage to chat a little bit about some of your journey throughout criminal defense. I understand from Megan that Andrew was the first Toronto lawyer you met. Tell us
1: about that.
2: He offered me a job. It was great. Well, that's, a, that's right a good away. start.
1: <laughs> of course. Who so. wouldn't like me in those circumstances? I liked you when
0: I met you way back when, uh, Jake, Jake Jesen hooked us up with the recent call committee, which was, uh, still starting back then. It was a group of young lawyers, um, before the recent call committee, uh, actually came into formation.
1: That's right. We used to do those events at U of T at the law school, and we used to get free pizza for people. And I think that was like a bigger draw than anything, anything we actually did there, there was free pizza, and free pop, and we used to like load up lecture halls at U of T.
0: And it was it was right around the same time, if you remember when the garage series actually uh, started. Do you recall? That's right. That's right. And we were worried because we couldn't compete with what Paul Cooper was putting on as part of the garage series. Uh, but eventually uh, there was enough space for all of us, I think. And right? now look at
1: you. You're in the big chair. Oh, yeah. You've taken over.
0: Megan was one of the first uh, guests at the Summer Solstice inaugural, inaugural event uh, that Paul Cooper put on for the Garage Series. Megan, uh, tell us about
2: that. So it uh, by being invited to speak at the event, I actually learned about the event it was based on, which was the Law Society Lecture Series, which I I don't come from either a Toronto or a lawyering family, so this was the first I'd heard of it. And the idea was that people would just come and listen to lawyers give a speech about something that they cared about. And it I realized how little that is actually a part of any of our you know, common ground or get together. We never get together to hear someone who's good at speaking speak. We always get together to see them get an award and make a speech about the award or to hear them talk about a legal topic that we want to learn about. And so this, I, I hope it's going to continue because I went to the one the year after that and it was, it was wonderful. I don't often feel sort of the majesty of law. Like I'm pretty practical about it. I kind of feel like we're all just plying a trade, but that was one of those times that I felt that.
0: The hope is uh, that they do continue and that we can start organizing those events despite Justice Cooper's uh, need to transition to the podcast last year due to the pandemic. The idea is that we are hoping to put a committee together to recreate those events. Uh, and That's a work in prog- progress, obviously, since uh, Justice Cooper is no longer uh, part of the defense bar. Andrew, I'd like to take your mind back to when you first started out as a lawyer wow are there any fond memories from those early days of practice
1: uh all of it the newness of it was was the biggest thing um and being in court uh and just getting a sense of how it all ran um seeing the first times that that defense counsel jostled with crowns jostled with jps jostled with judges um they were they were fun times, and and the panic of it. Looking back on it, you look back on it fondly. But everybody had those moments when they were students or when they were very young lawyers, where you feel like the day has is slipping away from you, and there is terror because something has gone off the rails with your set date, or something has gone off the rails with your in custody client. And but you look back on that, and and. In some ways, you learn more in those moments and dealing with those, um, uh, those issues that come up, those headaches that come up. You learn more there than, than you do listening to people talk about it.
0: How about you, Megan? Is there anything that you feel nostalgic about from those early days?
2: Oh man, the only thing I related to about what Andrew just said was panic. <laughs> I just it's it's fun now. I just remember starting out feeling completely unprepared and jealous of how brave everyone was in the court. I was just still trying to figure out where I was gonna stand. And meanwhile people are objecting and doing so based on principles of law that I don't understand. Now I understand That they're just standing up because they feel they need to and formulating it on their feet like we all do. But it just, I don't know. I I felt like it was still part of a club that I was only slowly being initiated into. And it wasn't until I'd been doing it for a few years that I really started to feel like I was learning to ride the bike.
1: But that's how it should be. Like, like I guess. You sh- we should it's we fun now, yeah. <laughs> it is now, but you shouldn't have a system where, you know, like a, 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 a first-year law student, summer student walks in and within a day or two can do, the, do it as well as anybody else there. Like, you're coming in knowing that there's a learning curve. Like, that's really how it should be. How You much should feel that way at the beginning.
0: How much of it do you think is uh, preparation versus experience?
1: Oh, um, that's a good question. I, 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 the, the trite answer is 50, 50, like for some of those early things, there's only so much you can prep for them. Like, you know, as, as a young student and as a young lawyer, you're getting relatively simple matters. You should prep them as much as you can until you feel you understand that issue until you understand what can go, what can happen at that trial. So you've gamed out all the scenarios as best as you can, but that that can only take you so far. So I I actually lean a little bit more towards the experience side of it. Like you have to you have to know how you're going to feel when things happen before you can you can shine. Not to take away from the prep, but I think the experience is actually paramount. Megan?
2: I think preparation is a substitute for experience and the result can be just as good either way, as long as you do the work somehow. I remember at the beginning when I had no idea how I was going to handle anything that might suddenly come up, I would over-prepare like a choose-your-own-adventure book. I would just imagine and wake up in the middle of the night imagining all the things that could go wrong, and then I would find the relevant section of the criminal code or the case that related to it, and then 90% of it would never happen, right? And now... I don't do that part of the prep anymore because I'm reasonably confident that either I've dealt with whatever unusual situation might arise or I've dealt with an analogous situation and I can kind of bluff my way through to a point where I know that I'm on solid ground. So that part I think is you prepare for it at first and then eventually I think experience takes over.
0: Andrew, what advice would you give to some younger counsel feel that they're out of their depth in the moment.
1: I think you have to have a sense at all times of what your end goal is walking in there. I think I think you have to remember that with each witness or with each uh, uh, set date even that you're doing. Like what, what is what tactically do you have to have happen at that point? And constantly train your mind to come back to, to, to bringing it back there. Like, you know, small issues will come up even in these minor trials. And I think people will oftentimes get lost in the moment of that issue. They'll be concerned about some objection that the crown has thrown their way. Even if it's a valid objection, they'll be terrified and, and they will, you know, struggle against it. You just got to remember what you're trying to do at the end of the day and and constantly think to yourself in those moments, how do I bring it back to that? that? That's sort of my starting point.
0: Megan, what would you suggest to young lawyers who are overwhelmed with that feeling of panic?
2: I would say don't let your ego get in the way of the record and the outcome. One of the mistakes that I made early on was assuming that people actually cared about me when I went into the courtroom instead of realizing that I was just a vessel for the client. I'm only there to help explain things and make things either easier or more difficult for the judge, depending on my day, and to do it effectively on the client's behalf. And if I make a mistake in the law, no one cares about it, what they what everyone should care about is the fact that if you don't correct your mistake quickly, or if you don't object, even if you're not sure what it is you're supposed to be objecting to because you're worried you're going to look silly, then you're prioritizing your own ego over the client's rights. It's way better to stand up and say, that doesn't feel right. I see it's time for the morning recess. Why don't we take it? I'll tell you why I'm objecting when we come back. (laughs) After these messages. (laughs) (laughs) Um,
0: Megan, do you have any do you have any superstitions or rituals that that you, you know, uh, engage in before you go into battle in a particular case?
2: Yeah, I don't know if you guys will relate to this, but I never wear heels if I'm doing something important cuz I feel like I kind of need I'm like a boxer. <laughs> I just I need to be able to dodge. The stick and move. Yeah, literal blows.
0: <laughs> so is there is there a particular brand of footwear or type of footwear? That you would recommend to young counsel that make you feel very grounded in those tough courtroom situations.
2: Uh, so I was really—I actually have an answer for this. You didn't think I would. I really am sad that Colhan ended its partnership with Nike because <laughs> I feel like they were the perfect shoe for this. Tell me I'm wrong. This—this this is not sponsored content. This, I just really like them. <laughs>
0: Andrew, what about you? You have any footwear that you wear or any any superstitions or rituals that you take into battle before you go
1: in? The only thing I might do is listen to Reptilia by the Strokes before I do like a closing jury address. But other than that, no. In fact, I try to go against the idea of being superstitious. Like I, I try to not have a routine because I don't want anything encroaching my brain saying, oh, like, you know, you didn't, you know, eat all of the purple marshmallows and the lucky charms this morning. So you're going to screw it up. So I try to specifically not have a routine.
0: So what is it? What is it about reptilia? Is it the guitar riff or uh, the, the line? Tell me a story. I hope you're not boring.
1: Yeah. And, and the, also the line about uh, taking over, which I feel is, is appropriate for like the one time as a, as a defense lawyer, when you're doing your closing address, the courtroom is yours and yours alone at that moment. So I, I kind of like that. And it's just my favorite song. And
0: Thinking about that moment and, and taking your mind back to the very, very first time you went to court or even one of those early court appearances, uh, is there anything that sticks out, Andrew, from those
1: early days? Um, the newness of it was what, what stuck out to me. Like the first
2: time I went to court was a set
1: date. I think that's almost going to be universal. I'd say yeah. that. Certainly,
2: that's the first time. That was me too. Right. I remember every second of right. it.
1: Right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and And if you think about the set date, it's an odd construct. Like you're going in to talk to a judicial officer about what's happened in the last three weeks of your case. And whether, I don't know, the crown's giving you disclosure or whether you're now the lawyer for the person and then you're going to put it over some arbitrary amount of time, some other four weeks. In the, and, and there's this, this dance to it, right? There's, there's the legal part of it, if you can even call it that, but the legal part of it. But then there's also like knowing where to sign up. And, and knowing where to sit. And, and there's this, this sort of ritualized part of the set date that like you're kind of trying to figure out while you're there the first time.
0: Do you know, in 111 court, when I found out that there was a back door entrance to sign up on the sheet, it was like the happiest
1: day of my life. Or upstairs at 1000 Finch, you'd go, yeah, I, I remember like being first 301, I'm like, I'm gonna be first on the list. And the first page is already all filled out. Where do these guys come from? I was here when they unlocked the door. No, no, no. The list was up in the Crown's office upstairs. Everyone was there at 8.30 signing up.
0: Megan, what about you? Do you recall your your first time you were in court?
2: Mine was a set date too. And just all I remember is I was so nervous that... I knew you would spell your name for the record, so I made sure that I wrote my name down in my notes (laughs) in capital letters with little M dashes in between the letters so I wouldn't just say my name. I would also remember to spell it, but that I think is also an example of over-preparing. I did need it, though.
0: Andrew, tell us about your experience as a summer student in Toronto.
1: Like a particular story or just the whole experience? A particular story.
0: Anything that stands so, up.
1: So I I summered for um, a very busy trial lawyer in the city who I who I still know and who I'm still friends with, and and he ran like a rough and ready practice and and he was fantastic. On, still is fantastic on the facts. But I remember we did a we had a murder trial together and and this is just this takes me back to sort of the 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 confidence. to to go forward sometimes the overconfidence to go for it so we have a murder trial and like there was no way this case was going to run the crown it was one of these where the crown had one guy who had just been picked up on a serious assault and all of a sudden he remembers about who the real killer was a year later in this unsolved murder and he's the only guy who says it's our client and nine other people have said it's some other guy who's now deceased so, but they use that statement to arrest my client. He's in custody for whatever, six months. And then that main witness dies himself in some in, in a shooting. So the Crown guy gets bail with like no conditions, like a murder bail with, with next to no conditions. And then the Crown decides they're going to withdraw the charge. So he, he comes into court for the day we're going to withdraw the charge at 2201 Finch. And we're in front of Judge... And you all remember him. And so lawyer looks at me and says, Andrew, make sure when I do my speech castigating this investigation, I don't mention the names of the investigating officers by name. That's going too far. I go, okay, yeah, no problem. As if like during the midst of that, he's going to look back at me. Like I'm sitting in the back of the courtroom. I'm there because I've worked on the case. So charge... He's going to be withdrawn. Crown asks that the charge be withdrawn. So counsel goes, Your Honor, can I say something? And His Honor says, Yeah, go ahead. And he goes, mm-hmm. he starts to just rip into the shoddiness of the investigation. And he turns and he goes, And I specifically want to mention Detective X, Detective Y, and Detectives Z. Their shoddy investigation led to an innocent man spending six weeks, six months in custody. So he finishes. And his honor looks down at him and says, well, counsel, those are some pretty mean things you just said in my courtroom. Your client's walking out of here. I suggest you follow him out. Get out. Counsel looks at him and goes, thanks, your honor. I can also address number 12 on your list. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I, I, I was always surprised as, as a young lawyer how some counsel just took the opportunity to say what was on their mind in court without any reference to the obvious lack of evidentiary record in support of anything they're saying. It always inevitably would spark some kind of colorful judicial comment, especially in the provincial court. It makes your day more interesting as a young lawyer, just to witness that. Okay guys, too much fun. Let's get into some serious topics. Megan, tell us about the time that um, you lost the case that one time, probably. And that it stuck with you more than usual.
2: Yeah, I don't want to. <laughs> it's hard. This is—it was, was my very first trial, and I was convinced it was a wrongful conviction. I still am. It was, and it was a minor case, right? Because first trials always are. It was a woman who suffered from alcoholism and was charged with assaulting her ex-boyfriend, who was just the worst. He was not a good human being, and you know why he's not a good human being, because in support of his lies, he brings his mother to back him up. And so we have my poor client, who has a string of alcohol-related assaults, pleaded guilty to every single one because she did them. Like, that was her approach. If I did it, I'm going to plead guilty. This one... It's her first trial ever, despite having a criminal record that's three pages long. And she says, I'm going to have a trial because this one I didn't do. I didn't do it. And she testifies. She's credible. She offers all of that up to the judge, including about her criminal record. And uh, boyfriend and his lying mother stand up and contradict her. And the judge convicts in part based on illegal propensity reasoning, including the nine prior guilty pleas to assault. And... It was, I was so convinced she didn't do it and suddenly struck by the fact that there was nothing I could do about a credibility assessment. And so I cried in my car on the way home and then her boyfriend called to tell me I was a bad lawyer (laughs) and, oh, thank goodness I had people around who are going to tell me their war stories and Yeah. yeah. And remind me that the, you know, the glory in this is really not glorious at all, right? It's doing a second trial after that trial.
1: There's there's nothing about the pandemic that has been more hurtful to the defense bar than losing that I go back to the office after a tough one.
2: Yeah. And
1: sit and vent. And even if nothing can be done, just hearing your colleagues trying to help you trying well you know what did the judge do with this like what happened here even that effort which in many cases is going to be futile like it is it is like a salve for the soul it really is and that's what that's what i've missed the most about the last 15 16 months
0: oh, andrew you remember um i actually got a a jury verdict double murder the day of the cla conference I remember and I just drove straight to the conference Yeah. and I didn't go into the conference. I just sat at the bar yeah. and Andrew just came and you just, what, did, what, what went wrong on a potential? And that was one, probably the only one case where I think there could be a wrongful
1: conviction there.
0: And, and when, it was a hard one.
1: And when you're in that position that you're listening to your colleague, don't <laughs> offer your own war story at first, just listen just listen to your colleague, just commiserate with them. And then afterwards you can start to fill in like the, you know, this reminds me of, but that ability, no one else is going to get that. Like we are, we are a breed apart in that sense. Like I can, I can cry to my wife about a case. I can cry to my parents about a case and, and they'll give me support, but there is nothing like the understanding that someone in our tribe gets and and that's uh that's what's been missing
0: and part of the reason for this project uh taking the podcast season two into this direction is specifically to try to fill that void that uh that i've been feeling of the absence of my colleagues and having uh you all in coming in uh two at a time to tell me their stories and share these things is is really important to me anyways and i think it's going to be important to our listeners and, and i'm hoping that this uh this is uh, as well received as I, as I'm hoping it will be. Andrew, how did you learn to cope with these losses?
1: Um, So, I mean, Megan and I both worked for Frank. He was, he was actually wonderful in those situations, even in cases that, that he did and lost. And, and he gave me some advice that I've carried through. You have a duty as a lawyer to look back forensically at your losses to determine what you could have done better. Right, We we all have that duty. You've got to do that because that's how you're going to get better. But if you're going to carry a loss, like a mark on your soul for for months or years, this job will chew you up because you only have so many of those in you. So I used to, um, I go by the rule now and I tell younger lawyers this now, putting the forensic, the clear-headed, Uh, recap and review of the case aside, you have 24 hours to feel bad about a case. You have 24 hours, you can wallow however you want, as healthily as you can. You can use that 24 hours to, to complain, to yell, to cry, to anybody you want. But when that 24 hours is done, it's over. You have to move on. And sometimes that's not going to be possible. But if you use that as a marker in terms of the emotional part of it, I find that works for me because it, it's just the rational, the conscious part of you saying you have to move on for the same reason. You can't carry a win with you from three years ago into the office every day. Like it, it doesn't work like that. You, you can't keep trying to feed off a high of a win that you had. You've got to move back to square one at, as soon as you can, no matter what the win is or the loss is. You celebrate your wins for 24 hours. You cry about your losses for 24 hours. Then you move on, like period, as best as you can.
0: And that, I'm going to segue into... How we stay motivated
1: and excited in this profession? Well, taking your losses with you at all times doesn't do that for you. Like, like you can, you can. I was a huge Washington football fan, and and back in the nineties, they, uh, eighties the and nineties, they had one of the best coaches in the game. It was Joe Gibbs, and he retired suddenly. And they asked him, "Why? You, why did you lo- Why did you leave?" And he said, "Because the wins were never as good as the losses were bad," and it tore him up the Hall of Fame coach had tore him up, he retired young. Uh, Motivation cannot come from constantly looking back and and holding grudges um, and and nursing losses. It's got to come from the excitement of the work. It's got to come from enjoying what you do, enjoying cracking open a new file, enjoying the process that you've put in place to go through any case, be it a trial or an appeal.
0: Megan, you agree what excites you about this this business.
2: It's a version of the same thing. It's the chance to become temporarily an expert on something that is entirely different from what you were doing two weeks ago. I'd say so I am one of those people for whom the wins are never as good as the losses are bad. That's just who I am naturally. And I I found that having something on deck when I was about to receive judgment always calmed me down a little bit because I knew I was going to have something to go back to, to focus on. Um, and actually, I, for a while, I came to depend on that so much that I didn't build in enough time to have a proper emotional response. So now I think it's a little bit of both, right? And I'd tell people who uh, who ask, you know, make sure you build in chances for emotional recovery, or celebration on the day you know you're getting that judgment from the court of appeal, um, because I think it's also unhealthy to jump straight into the next file without taking a minute and acknowledging how hard that case was on your body and soul, right? And so I think that happy medium is required.
0: Yeah, I think people don't really appreciate how much like it takes, how much energy it takes from you. Physically, mentally, yeah. um, you know, we're working when you're in a trial, you're working late nights, you're, you're, you're disassociated mentally from, you know, sometimes your friends, your family, cause your mind can't stop thinking about the case. What's, what's going to happen next? What's the question next, especially a jury trial. I find myself constantly writing my address in my mind throughout the course of
1: the trial. Well, you're right about the physical part of it. Like, And we, we've all had those moments where you've gone through a stretch. I, I remember I, I did a four-month jury trial, and then I had a week off. Then I had three trials in three days, then an OSC hearing, and then a three-day serious sexual assault trial two weeks after that. And then when that trial was done, I was done. I remember like going home and first going back to the office and just telling everybody who would listen, I'm done. And I I think I I went to bed that night at like 7.30 and I slept until 11 the next day. Like my body just, it was like, it was telling me you need to shut down. Like the adrenaline stores were exhausted and and, um, it was very weird feeling that for the first time. You get used to it. You can bounce back a little quicker as the years go on. But it's it's happening, and there's no use working in those those couple of days where that's happening to you. Like you need to decompress at that point.
2: I, I find the emotional part of it scarier. Like you said dissociation, that's the scariest part to me to realize that I'm so involved in what's going on in my head that I've just missed an entire you know evening at home with my kid. Like that, And and I think it was becoming a parent that taught me to practice not dissociating so much to turn it more into the skill of compartmentalization instead of the disorder of dissociation because I find that's the kind of stuff you can't easily bounce back from. And I actually deliberately don't schedule stuff back to back now because I need to be able to recalibrate and just get back to being the kind of person who has normal emotions and reactions in between big cases.
0: Can you shed some light, Megan, on uh, parenting and being a criminal defense lawyer or being a mom?
2: Yeah, I mean, well, that was part of it, right? its uh, I'd say that taught me work-life balance where everything else failed. Um, because you finally have someone who actually needs you to have work-life balance in order to thrive. Um, and I think the converse of that is it's really important and I'll say especially as a woman doing this job for me to show my son how much I care about it so he knows I'm not leaving to do something cuz I don't care about him I'm leaving him to do something that's really important for the community and um you know all, all of society right and that I love to do so I I involve him as much as I can he's 6 I can't tell him all the details of my cases but You know, I tell him that I have clients in jail and that my job is to get them out. During the pandemic, he learned how to make his own lunch. And, you know, part of the motivation for getting him to make his own lunch was I explained to him that he was helping me help my clients when I was in court and he was making his lunch. I think
0: that's actually billable.
2: I, I, yeah, I'll tell him he can (laughs) (laughs) right now. I pay him a quarter for every task he does. So that's probably legal aid standard rates, right? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. That's an edit. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Speaking of family, Andrew, do you ever have family members come watch your cases? They come all the time. And Uh, what do they say?
1: Oh, they get into it. I, I enjoy it. Um, they they get very engaged with the issues and they get very curious and they get very interested which i think is the point of people coming to court so i always like to encourage it um and uh, you know they'll they'll be very clear to me when they think my my client should win versus when my client should lose when my client wins it's andrew you need to do everything you can for this person and when they think my client should lose it's have a good one andrew Thanks. We'll see you. We'll see you this weekend, <laughs> but uh, they, they enjoy it. I like having them come and, uh, and I think that's the, the function of an open court. I, I encourage them to come because then the next time I see them at the next birthday or whatever, they're just going to be that much more knowledgeable about what I do.
0: My father, before he passed away, he wanted to come see me do a, a jury trial. And was, there were four co-accused. And so he comes down to the 361 at 10 in the morning. And I cross-examined the co-accused until 10.45. And then I sat down until one. And then we went for lunch. And then at lunch he goes, when you don't talk, do you get paid? I said, "Yeah, we get paid." Ah, you got a good job, then. You got a good job. Your dad <laughs> like, had
1: his eye on the ball. <laughs>
0: he wasn't. He wasn't missing. He wasn't missing a beat there. But that was uh, the only time a family member came to watch me. How about you, Megan? Anybody come watch you?
2: Oh no, I discourage it. I moved across the country <laughs> so <laughs> that no one would show up in my courtrooms. But my mom, every time I'm on anything that is captured and put on the internet, will find it and watch it. So I think that's how she shows love. Wow, that's nice. Yeah. My, uh, my now partner, actually, I had a Supreme Court hearing coming up the week after our first date. And so I just mentioned it kind of in passing and maybe also as justification for why I was a little bit stressed and <laughs> distracted. And unbeknownst to me, he he's not a lawyer, but he found out that the Supreme Court of Canada hearings are webcast. And so went and watched it live while I was on my feet and then didn't tell me about it for a while. Cause he didn't want me to think he was weird. <laughs> but, that, <that's> sweet. <laughs> but yeah, it's I mean, the best. I love it now, but I also appreciate his judgment and not telling me right away. <laughs> I,
1: I also appreciate your first date flex dropping in. I'm in the Supreme court next week. It, it was more apologetic date-wise. in tone. and trust me, <laughs> it, it doesn't
2: work as well for women. <laughs> Why not?
1: That's unfortunate. It
0: should. <laughs> All right. Let's, uh, Let's talk about this. Let's get back on track. Get back on track. We're <laughs> to that. Um, besides Frank Adariel, whom you both had the benefit of working with for many years, is there any other lawyer that you feel privileged to have seen in action? Or alternatively, is there any lawyer that you wish you could have seen in action? Megan, let's start with you.
2: Um, I remember getting to see John Norris and Marlis Edward at the same hearing when I was an articling student and it just blew me away they both had such an incredible command of their subject matter and on top of that they were so persuasive just you it's still one of only a handful of times that you can actually see the judges kind of changing their mind as someone's talking
0: what was that at the supreme court
2: uh yeah it was uh the cotter cotter number two and so they were each there for a different uh party and and that back then interveners got a whole 10 minutes and so they were doing it in this really succinct powerful effective way that built on what other people had already said so you knew it wasn't just canned and just made it seem to the judges as if it was their own idea just packaging your submissions in a way that's so reasonable and also so persuasive I just yeah that's worth emulating
1: yeah they both had a kind of ruthless calmness to them yeah there was no there was there was no wasted with either of them there's no wasted movement and their crescendos were more there wasn't force it was just had that tone to it of just like and obviously like this is where we're ending up like you'd have to be a fool not to see it this way they both had that so they're wonderful
0: and the same answer for you, uh, Andrew, I, or I, anybody else?
1: It could well have been. I, I'll go off the board for, for a defense lawyer. I'm going I'm to bring up a crown. Um, w- Frank and I had a, very early in my career, um, had a, an appeal where we were trying to get an NCR substituted for a guilty verdict, and there was a fresh evidence issue. And the court was with us. I, I, I've done enough appeals to know when the court was with us, and they were with us there, and all the questions are clearly feeding it in. And the crown was Jamie Klukach. So Jamie gets up and she starts to to ask questions. And it was one of those blessed days in the court of appeal where they're all over her at the outset. And they're asking like, okay, you know, but once we've satisfied the four fresh evidence uh, uh, criteria, then like we have no choice but to order a new trial. And Jamie just see her shift. Midstream. just sh- And she said it. And she said, you know, I think I'm going to go to my next, my next argument. I'm going to focus on the fourth Palmer branch because I'm on safer ground there. And then she took them to the record and painstakingly overwhelmed them with the record on her answer, on that criterion. And you just see them go from being an active bench to just looking down and then writing. And she just... Using the record, using an excellent command of what she had, she just took them to where she wanted to go. And there was there was no denying her. And I remember we stopped and and we go back to grab a coffee upstairs at the, the restaurant. And Frank looks at me, he goes, we had them. He goes, we had them. I go, yeah, now we don't. And, and th- there was such confidence in her ability to almost conversationally look at the court. And say, yeah, you know what, this is this is a garbage argument. Not by saying it's a garbage argument, but in not so many words. And then just saying, but but here, here's where I'm on strong ground. And and if you have the confidence in your argument to be able to do that, that's actually a plus, right? And and I think that goes back to what Megan was talking about earlier with the ego thing. Like there are times when even I still feel I've got a bad argument. I got to go down with the ship. Well, maybe you do if that's the only thing you can say for your client. But if you've got a better argument or one that you can tell the court is going to be more engaged with potentially, sometimes you got to pull up stakes and go to go to solid ground. And there's no shame in that. Uh, in fact, there's a lot of strength in that because it makes the court kind of take notice and okay, this is his good argument. All right, let's hear it.
0: It's nice that from time to time throughout your career, you can have the opportunity to observe counsel who have the ability to converse with the court and persuade them through some natural old school advocacy. I find it very motivating when I witness that.
1: Going back to what motivates you generally, you you need to be able to look at people who do a wonderful job in court and and have that motivate you. I, I think that's entirely necessary.
0: Megan, is there any legal professional that you wish you had the opportunity of seeing as counsel and, and watch them litigate?
2: Um, uh, so I would really have wanted to see Eleanor Cronk litigate a case. Before she became a judge. I talk about people who become judges as if they died. I, I, I don't know why. I guess they don't have the same opportunities for advocacy. Right. That they, they stop. Did when they're, they're, they're not members of the
0: bar anymore. So we, <laughs> yeah, can, exactly. we can look at them in that. She's
2: no longer with us. Uh, but she isn't in the sense of being a partisan advocate. And that I would have really liked to see. Because I did get a chance to hear her speak on non-advocacy topics. And it was so clear how good she would have been. Um. And I deliberately chose her because I kind of feel like most of the greats are a little bit unrelatable for me, right? Like they're all, they're, they're just like the standard white men from the fifties and sixties. And they're not, they don't have a style I want to emulate, even if I could. So it was, that was a bit of a tougher, a tougher question to answer.
0: Andrew Furgiwelli and Savard. I can't thank you enough for taking the time to come on the law garage and share your experience with our listeners. Continuing legal education can take various forms and I believe that there's something to gain from just talking to our colleagues, which is something I've really missed throughout the pandemic as we've discussed. And as you may have guessed before we go, is there anything
1: you want to plug or let us know where we can find you? You can find my our firm website, dfrlitigation.com. You can find me on Twitter, at Fergie Andrew, but I don't tweet. I basically only tweet Court of Appeal judgments and Supreme Court judgments. Um, otherwise, you can call me. Megan?
2: Prisoners Rights Project greats grassroots organization. I'm not associated with it in any way, but they're... They do great stuff. And find me on Twitter.
0: We'll, uh, we'll put that link on, on our website when we post this. Thanks, guys. Thanks very much for being here. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Thank you for listening to The Law Garage podcast. If you're new to the podcast, please check out Season 1 and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at The Law Garage. Our production crew includes executive producer Jason Cooper, and associate producers Christina Zdow and Remy Sansowal. The Law Garage is a Jay Mike podcast production.